Welcome to the podcast of the Journal of Applied Ecology, where we put applied ecology into practice. At Intercol in August 2013, the Journal of Applied Ecology sponsored a symposium entitled Putting Applied Ecology into Practice, Knowledge and Needs for the 21st Century. The keynote talk was given by Professor Peter Kariva from the Nature Conservancy, and the title of his presentation was How Science Has Transformed Conservation from Simple Land Acquisition to Development by Design, Green Corporate Practices, and Alignment of Conservation with Human Incentives. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thank you for coming to this session. This is the Putting uh, Applied Ecology into Practice Symposium, which has been kindly sponsored by the British Ecological Society, because this is, uh, symposium is celebrating, it's part of the celebration of the 50 years of Journal of Applied Ecology. And recently we launched a practitioner's perspective uh, um, section in our journal, and uh, this symposium really builds on that, where we want to bring people who are uh, far more hands-on in conservation science tell us a little bit about their experiences and the role of science actually might have in improving the, the conservation outcomes around the world. So we're bringing together uh, chief scientists of, of NGOs, uh, uh, heads of ecology in uh, ecological con consultants, as well as uh, a leading published editor of a, a, a leading conservation journal. The plan is to have each of the speakers um, give their talks. There will be time for questions after their talks if uh, they give you time. But at the end, we've got a half-hour slot where we can actually have uh, a roundtable discussion. And I'd much rather prefer to have the roundtable discussion and use that as a, a forum to, to get you all to, to think about some of the issues that have been raised in this, in this uh, symposium. Okay, so the first speaker, and it's a great honor to uh, introduce Peter Kariva. Uh, Peter is the chief scientist and also the vice president of the Nature Conservancy uh, in the U.S. And um, he's responsible for developing and helping implement science-based conservation uh, in, in the U.S. And he's going to be talking to us about uh, how science has transformed conservation uh, in the world's largest conservation NGO. Thank you. Uh, I feel like I've come home here. It's over 10 years ago I left academia and left ecology in a sense. I haven't been at ecological meeting in a long while. I've spent much of I can't even tell my students to not go to conservation meetings anymore and go to ecology meetings. I'm serious about that. Um, so, I mean, when you get into it, most people are interested in ecology, do it uh, for love and curiosity, but I think we all have some desire to make a difference. And that's one of the reasons I, I made my career change to this NGO, the Nature Conservancy. Before I turn to the science, um, I have to give you a little bit of context and background about, about TNC. It's the world's largest conservation NGO, a revenue of $1 billion a year we have to raise. $1 billion a year. Uh, we have about 4,000 staff, 700 scientists. That means their job classification of scientists. There are many more who were trained in science and end up being uh, directors of country programs, directors of state programs, running communications, marketing. They end up in very, very different job areas but they were trained in science. Um, we protected, we started out mainly just about land protection, I'll give a little bit of the history in a second, but we protected 120 million acres. That's two times the land area of the UK. Private land conservation, two times the land area of the UK. Uh, as I said, we're in all these different countries and states. Um, you probably don't know that much about it. We used to say, um, 
we do conservation the old-fashioned way we do it quietly. In the modern internet world, we can't do that anymore because that was the art culture. Um, say a little bit about things that make us different. I mean, there's a big space of international conservation NGOs, Wildlife Conservation Society, WWF Conservation International, and so forth. And we trade scientists and we all work pretty well together. But there's some unique features. We all have a different personalities. The unique <coughs> features are, are major conservancies. We have paid memberships. To be a member, you have to pay uh, not that much, but a significant investment. <coughs> Something that nobody else has is wherever we work, we build what we call local boards of trustees of volunteer leaders. These are political figures, artists, sculptors, painters, business leaders, community leaders, and scientists. So New York State would have them. California has a board. China has a board. Brazil has a board. And all these regional boards have some natural affection and love of nature in their area. And we don't just use them like everybody to raise money. We use them because they're engaged. They care about what's happening. A lot of them uh, um, are fishermen, they're birders. They, they have some direct personal connection. But they're also been very successful in some part of their, their life. And uh, we do that professionally and extremely well. I think that's how we succeed. We like to say through our board, we can have lunch with anybody in the world. And that's our aspiration, and I think it's actually true. Um, we outright own a lot of land, as I mentioned before. But the interesting thing is on that land, we farm, we fish, we lawn, we own fishing boats. We're, we engage with making a living off land as well as protecting it for, for nature conservation. Um, and that's very important. It gives us credibility in certain arenas. The last sort of distinguishing feature is we have this, um, this big, because we're managed by people from Goldman Sachs and Wall Street and stuff like that, we really know banks and the investment world. Um, we have very good credit ratings. We have this what we call uh, LPF fund. Um, it's a land preservation fund. It's a revolving fund. We use it for anything. But it's like instant credit where we can get 200, 300, or 400, or 500 million dollars like on a credit card. And that means if an island like Elmira Island it looks like it's going to be developed, we can buy it. And then we turn it over to a national government for a part. So it's a, it's a very unusual capacity to be able to act that fast. And it means a lot of times our science has to act that fast because we're, we're engaged in those types of things. So the interesting fact about the history is the Nature Conservancy was once part of the Ecological Society of America. Victor Shelford, who was the first president of the Ecological Society of America, was interested in, in buying land as natural laboratories, not for a conservation point of view, as an ecologist to study it, to have these representations of different habitats and plant colonies and use them to study. That's what he's interested in. And it was actually an official committee of the Ecological Society of America. There was, a, there was sort of a fight in society in the 30s where Shelford and his, and his colleagues wanted to charge each member of the ESA 35 cents a year for membership, 35 cents, and then that could go to acquiring this land that we could then do experiments on and do observations on. And there was a big split, and, and that was seen as too unscholarly and too, um, you know, it, it kind of, whatever, it kind of booted out of uh, the East Ecological Society. 
and then set up a separate office of the kidney. It became um, the Ecological Union, Ecologist Union. Victor Shelford was still part of it. One of his students uh, was blackness. George Fell took it over as a, as a leader. They were two years sort of struggling as scientists trying to do this. I mean, it didn't work as a byland out for study. Um, they were pretty inept. But uh, George Fell got the idea, well, we're not good at this. Let's engage businessmen, community leaders, lawyers, real estate people, get them into the thing, form a real organization and do it professionally. And that's the nature conservatism was founded in 1951. So scientists founded it, but they enlisted these other areas of expertise who would be much more accomplished at these transactions, these deals, as, as, we, as, as we call them. George Fell started out, he, he had Drew Moussel or no salary, his wife is a medical technician, and she supported him while he got started. So you see we've grown quite a bit. Um, again, we started out as a land trust, and we were partly responsible for the growth of the land trust industry in the US because of how much we professionalized it. We went to each state and tried to get consistent laws so that you could operate in all the states the same way. We influenced federal tax law for tax write-offs. This is the exponential graphic, the growth of the land trust in the United States, conservation land trust that go out and protect land. And it's an amazing, successful industry. You may not realize this, but private land conservation, private land, not government, yeah, private land conservation protected more land than the U.S. and the lower 48 states that are in the national parks. And we were pretty good national parks. And you, you think about, uh, it's your ecologist, I think everywhere, we talk about the pace of development and, and how it's going. The pace of land protection in the U.S. has exceeded the pace of development in terms of acres. So more acres have privately been protected than have been developed for the last 10 years. It's amazing. Business model. In the process, so started out with scientists, got all these business types who knew how to do these land units. Scientists don't know how to do it. And know how to raise money from investors. We don't make money off the land, but they knew how to go out and ask their rich friends to get into the cause. Um, we came, realized that when you're asking people to give you money and to spend it, you gotta be able to tell them what you're doing with it. What, what are they getting for their money? And we started to get very systematic. Science reemerged, and it's we call it conservation by design. It's this, this, I know it's a simple-minded diagram, but it's basically you use science to set priorities. So you don't buy anything, because all land's not equal if you're engaged in conservation or biodiversity or freshwater systems, whatever it is, whatever your objective is. Use the science to develop the strategies. You do something, you take action. That's where the businessmen come in. That done, you use science to evaluate the outcome. You learn from evaluating the outcome, and you, you go through the cycle. So it, I, it, I know it's a cartoon, but it's really so part of our DNA to, to do things this way. And early on, uh, in, the, in the 90s, for, as an example, many of you know Marksand, which came out of a few positives group in, in Australia. We gave a contract to have that developed because we knew we needed that. We knew we needed that systematic, quantitative, database approach to setting up what lands we could buy and how we protect it. So it was a contract that he involved and um, and um, and Hughes group, they had already had the methods, they had developed the methods, but 
we don't find it to make it easier for all of our landscape ecologists and all our scientists to do this. And we drew heavily on, obviously, uh, Rob Pressey's ideas from Australian landscape ecology as well. What we did with it is we made these things we call ecoregional plans. This is one covering Montana and um, Idaho and Oregon. And it, the green spots are our conservation priorities. Associated with that would be a database for the species that were there, and it would be what we were trying to protect by whatever device we were And so here's the map. We call it the portfolio for all the United States. Now it's just a map. And there are other talks, I heard some talks coming here talk about how these maps often aren't used, they can be inspired. This is actually very effective in the federal government. It's very effective in the United States. But, but these maps are also used in a kind of um, ingenious way with action agencies and, and with the public. So this is all based on data, habitat corridors, representation, um, you know, large areas, buffers, we protect buffers, it's all, there's all this behind it, sort of classic landscape ecology behind it. We also do it in a marine, I put up a marine map, because you may know there's a lot of resistance to, to, to no-cake zones in the marine world from the fishing community. So we published a paper in Frontiers, identified priority areas for California coast. At the same time, to get this map developed, we did one of our deals. We bought trawlers from the fishermen, refitted them so that they weren't bottom trawlers, but they were hooking line, and then leased them back to the fishermen. By doing that, we weren't taking livelihoods away from the fishermen. They weren't overcapitalized and losing money by the no-take zones, and the fishing community agreed to have the no-take zones off the coast of California. Um, and we leased them back. We're not trying to make money off them. We leased them back at very good rates for trawlers. So they had no financial risk whatsoever, and they accepted the marine protected areas. It's a pretty clever idea. And it worked. This is data on what they caught. What we did is we converted a, a, a low value, high volume in terms of weight fishery into a high value, low volume fishery by going for trawlers or hook and mine, and their revenues after the no-take zones were implemented are almost back up to what they were uh, before we set up the no-take zones and shut down the fishery. So they feel no uh, economic suffering, the habitat coming back very successful. Another example of, of using the most simple science, it's just in habitats. Did a global habitat analysis, this paper is published in Ecology of Letters in 2005. Global habitat analysis of what are the most threatened habitats from the point of view of um, what um, percentage of the habitat is protected and what percentage has been converted. And the ratio of the converted to protected is sort of how under siege it is. And it turns out grasslands are in the worst shape of the world. That was published in Tim probably in almost every conservation biology textbook now. Grasslands are totally under siege. It's not surprising to the agricultural lands and so forth. That was published in 2005. Within three years of that publication, once you think about your institutions, where you work, Within three years of that scientific publication, we got legal approval, set up offices, and hired staff in Argentina and Mongolia to protect grasslands. Within three years. That's why I love a job. Because <laughs> it, it, it happens. Um, I'm going to Mongolia in a couple days, and it's just amazing. The woman that leads the program was a, one of the first members of parliament and done amazing things in just five years of 
But that's a fast translation of science into something happening. The next thing we do, it's very related to that traditional planning, is we're always collecting global data and looking for trends and analyzing. So this is a, glo a global map of areas that are under permit for either um, mineral or energy oil extraction in the world. And you look at that and you say, uh, wow, you know, you're interested in protecting biodiversity or natural systems and that's what's going on. Uh, you better get ahead of it. So here's what we do. We call it development by design. And the essential idea is, you know, really when you come down to it, those conservation maps that we all do, you know who looks at them? Ministers of the environment. Who's the weakest member of cabinet in any country? Minister of the environment. You want the minister of development to be looking at your maps. So now we make maps of development and protection in the same map. That's what we call development by design. So we map areas where you can mine, where you can get oil, and you, at the same time, the areas that have to be protected on that same map. Using many of the same principles. But just the, and, and the basic idea is there's some areas you avoid, there's areas where you go and you use best practices and management practices to minimize the damage. There will be damage. You mitigate it either by restoration or by offsets. But here's an example, very topical. This is just our Pennsylvania chapter did this. They did a projection for Pennsylvania where there's, um, you know, uh, shale oil, shale gas, just, Explosion there, they're anticipating 25,000 um, miles of pipeline potentially being built in the next 20 years to extract this resource. Already, there's a lot of oil pads and so forth in Pennsylvania. Very contentious thing. You're not going to stop that industry. You're just not going to stop it. You go in with development by design, uh, you work with the government that are tightly regulated, but you do this. This is the, what it does just to the habitat. That's the, the pipeline to gather the gas. You go in and you work with the industry to compare different alternatives in terms of impact and forest clearing, stream crossings, this is to schools, that's for contamination, and, and you come up with quantitative impact scores and you basically try to skew their development. It's very, very successful. It's very, very successful at steering development away from vulnerable human situations and away from vulnerable communities. Because you're not saying absolutely no to the shit oil and gas, you're trying to get it regulated, but you're also steering development. Controversial, I admit, in the environmental arena, but I think the right way to go. Another big scientific advance is ecosystem science and ecosystem services. We have a partnership with Stanford University, University of Minnesota, WWF, to now add ecosystem service models. And I'll just show one and how we used it. These are models um, that look at the effect of shoreline habitats, and it has to be tailored to the type of habitat. Salt marsh, oyster reef, could be coral reef, could be kelp forest, could be subtitled seagrass bed. Look, each of them may be treated differently. Coastal engineers generate the models for how that habitat lowers the wave storm surge. And then you can say how much that reduces flooding from coastal communities and use it in a quantitative or predictive way. This paper was just published in Nature Climate. It does it for North America. 
and we quantify the risk to populations and the value of the habitat to protecting both property, yes, the property damage, and human life. So, um, and it's, a very, it's very effective for influencing policy. It's also very effective for telling us where to go to actually do this. So one of the areas that's most vulnerable and most of the need of habitat protection, of course, is the, is the Gulf Coast. What do we do in the Gulf Coast? We restore oyster reefs. We restore them experimentally and do economic analysis. But experimentally, there's a lot of different ways of building oyster reefs. The main ones are just putting them in bags, blocks, or sort of these walls, and then building oyster reefs on different modules and seeing how well they can. Do all that as an experiment. Do the economics. Find out that economically, in 10 years, they pay for itself. It costs a million dollars a mile. Million dollars a mile to do this work. Pretty expensive. But in 10 years, it pays for itself in terms of the fisheries production and oyster production. And that's not the shoreline protection. And it works. This is from Google Earth. Those are some of the reefs. And already, the shoreline starts to build behind them. We're obviously doing this with proper controls and air controls and so forth. But it's pretty impressive for Google Earth and stuff to see it. In point of fact, though, I mean, what I said makes it sound great, but really what happens is much of the time we don't monitor. In reality, and none of us in the NGO world monitor as much as we should. So we've tried to understand that using a scientific method. And we've gone to one area in, 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 the, in the Pacific Ocean, Micronesia, emphasizing the Micronesia, a lot of different islands and states, where there have been many marine protected areas set up. And there's varying degrees of monitoring and varying degrees of success. Looking at them and asking, what are the keys to actually getting monitoring done? Recognize that most of the time they don't get done. Social sciences, there's a lot of theories about why science is used or not. Um, and we try to ask, you know, what explains where it's taken up and where it's not taken up? So this is Nimpel. Um, it's, a, it's a marine protected area in Micronesia. In this case, the evidence is that it was a science deficit model that was overcome. That's why monitoring was taken up. The community leaders, when the NPAs were set up, the community leaders asked for monitoring training, and we gave it to them. So we gave them the monitoring training, and then the, the downstream effects of that where this is one, the only, one of the only places where they didn't lift harvest restrictions in the marine protected area. They didn't lift them because the community was collecting the data, using the data, and seeing how to use it. So they asked for the science training to do the monitoring. They did the monitoring, they used the data. Many other communities had no science training. The marine protected area lifted the restrictions and it never really amounted to much. The last thing I sort of talk about is what I call keystone species in a global world called corporations. You all know what keystone species are in an ecological world. But think about corporations in terms of their impacts on material, energy flow, and so forth. Think about Walmart. Walmart has 15% of the world's fresh food market. Any species of rivals that? Their metabolic rate is you know, equal to three or four billion squirrels. In terms of their, their <laughs> um, They've got a bigger GDP than all my 25 countries. You know, they got more employees. Their employees outnumber the populations of 100 nations. 
in the ecological sense, you can't think of a more keystone species. And that's true of the mining companies, chemical companies, and so forth, and different impacts. So instead of being bothered by the politics, think about it as an ecologist and recognize you have an opportunity here. Don't worry about the politics. This is the, there's, you're probably aware of this, but sustainability reporting has taken off exponentially. There's been a two orders of magnitude increase over the last decade in the number of companies that have serious sustainability reports. They're not dishonest. They may not have really solid data. They don't publish dishonest stuff because they can be sued for it. So it may be vacuous and not have real hardcore data and more marketing, but nonetheless, they're putting energy in it. Some of them are extremely good. They're better than I bet you your university reports in terms of accountability. Nikes um, is an example for it. It's a barrel. So why not take advantage of that and try to turn those sustainability things into something conservation? Work with Dow. We work heavily with Dow in a number of different areas. I'll just show you one outcome. In Freeport, Texas, uh, it's, a, it's an ozone non-attainment zone. There's a lot of ozone non-attainment zones around the world. I'll show it to you in a second. Did the calculations or did the modeling to show if Dow restored bottomland hardwood forests, the native forest has been pretty much removed, they could do so at a cheaper rate than the um, on-the-site engineering solution. It'll save them money, be more effective, and get a lot of other benefits. So that's submitted now. This is sort of the calculation for that. And this is this is no carbon credits or anything. If they had carbon credits, we don't have carbon credits in the US, but if they had carbon credits, they would really be saving a ton of money. So it's just cheaper for them, and this means buying the trees, putting them out the labor, everything, of reforesting than it is for the conventional control. It could restore one of the most ravaged habitats in southeastern US and have all these other benefits. So now we work with EPA to get this done. These are the um, the orange areas of the are the non-attainment zones in the U.S. There's a lot of non-attainment zones in Europe, by the way. Um, and so it's a, it's it's not just a local strategy, although the science is done locally. Let me um, end up by sort of a wild idea, and that's that when we pause and think about. We're ecologists, you know, we care about how you manage this piece of land and that piece of land. What do you do right in this country and that country? But you look at the scale of the problems. And I don't think we've done the math right in terms of the scale of the problems. You really want to change the system. So here's our wild idea. You want the sustainability reporting to be real, to have real ecosystem science behind it, thresholds. So we're in a project now to really identify using ecosystem service models and theories of thresholds and so forth, material risk to corporations. Material risk to corporations. Not what makes it feel good. What's material risk in the supply chain? And our ambition, now I admit this is crazy in a sense, is that to get major, all the major stock exchanges to require all corporations to deliver sustainability metrics. Called the Earth Genome Project. I like that name. In fact, I raised money for it. But we call it the Earth. Uh, if you could do this, this is much better than thinking about one project at a time. And there already is um, a, a, an investment firm, I'm trying to remember the name of it, uh, it's a climate investment. It manages $11 trillion of assets, and 
with attention to, to carbon, carbon alone, and it's persuaded companies to be very serious about their carbon reporting. And carbon reporting is important, but it doesn't really deal with land degradation, freshwater systems pollution, and all these other things that, that we know matter, land diversion. This is within our, I, mean, I call it their genomes because it's that scale, but it's within our scientific ability to do this. That's the scale. If we're really honest with ourselves, if you really want to protect the environment, you, you've got to affect global corporations and the whole financial system. And if you do that, then you'll, you'll change the world. So that's, that's our ambition. We've always, uh, we, we've had big ambitions like that before that failed. We'll see how, how this goes. That's my passion for the next five years. I'll end up by saying, you know, it was a real culture shock for me to go from a university to TNC. Um, we're so fast-paced. It's why it's so exciting to me. But we're so fast-paced, we can never do anything probably as well as most of you would do. And um, we make mistakes, and, and we don't really care about making mistakes so much. I must skip that in just a time. We do recognize, so I'm advertising a couple of programs. We do recognize, just the talent in this room, I'm sure, is enormous compared to our talent. It's very hard for us to keep up with cutting edge science. Because most of us, we do science, we still publish we do some science. We're also doing these deals. We're also fundraising. Our jobs are pretty bizarre. So we, we, we really increasingly recognize we need university partners. We have two big new partnerships. So you can, you can get on the web and look up SNAP is. Um, and uh, just go to that. That's there's a call for proposals, and we have a postdoc <coughs> for postdocs, and that's called Nature Net Science Fellows. It's poorly named, so that somebody rich can come in and we can name it after her or him. <laughs> um, last thing I want to say is this is really kind of heartening. You get the the, the idea from uh, reading the media for America and for a lot of places that people don't respect science. You know how, how dumb the public is. And isn't it sad that scientists aren't listening to you? And there's all the stories don't they understand things. We did a stratified random sample of our supporters and asked them why they supported TNC. We asked them lots of reasons, like business-like, professional, on-the-ground results. The number one answer was guided by science. The people that give us a billion dollars a year, the number one reason was guided by science. That shows you the level of respect science can have among a certain set of society that really makes a difference. Sure, there's a lot of people that, that don't get it, but there's also a lot of people that do get it and are willing to support you to solve major problems. And I always have my talks at TNC uh, with this picture of what science does for them and ask for a raise. Thanks. <laughs>